0: Hello and welcome back to KHN's What the Health. I'm your host, Julie Rodner, Chief Washington Correspondent for Kaiser Health News. I'm joined by some of the best and smartest health reporters in Washington. We're here to bring you the latest in news about health policy from the White House, Capitol Hill, federal agencies and the states. We're taping today on Thursday, March 12th at 3.30 p.m. As always, news happens fast and things might have changed by the time you hear this. So here we go. Today, we are joined by Joanne Kennan of Politico. Hey, everybody. And Mary Agnes Carey of Kaiser Health News. It's great to be here. And because this episode is marking the 10th anniversary of the Affordable Care Act, which President Obama signed on March 23, 2010, we're going to start this week with special guest Kathleen Sebelius, who was Secretary of Health and Human Services during the passage and implementation of the law. Also, our weekly reminder, if you want to see us as well as hear us, an edited version of the podcast is now on the cable channel Newsy at 11 a.m. Eastern every Sunday. So here is my chat with Secretary Sibelius. Then we will come back and have our discussion. We are pleased to welcome to the podcast Kathleen Sebelius. I first met Kansas Insurance Commissioner Sebelius in the 1990s. She went on to serve nearly two terms as Kansas governor and in 2009 became Barack Obama's Secretary of Health and Human Services, serving until 2014. Full disclosure, today, among her other activities, Secretary Sebelius is a member of the Kaiser Family Foundation Board of Trustees. Welcome to What the Health. Thank you. Nice to be with you, Julie. So you have been involved in health policy for almost as many years as I have, possibly more. Uh, How would you describe the U.S. health system's biggest problems prior to the passage of the ACA?
1: Well, I think the problems were we had way too many people who had no insurance coverage at all. Uh, So they weren't accessing preventive care. They didn't have a regular doctor, often using emergency rooms or no health care at all and finding conditions and diseases at a very late stage. Um, we also had lots of people who were struggling with cost. Uh, that was problematic. And I think as a country, we spent very little focus on preventive health, a lot on a disease system, but we really didn't have a health care system trying to keep people healthy in the first place. And Paying doctors and providers to um, try and work with patients to stay healthy and out of the healthcare system as opposed to paying them only when their patients had procedures or diagnostics or um, various other issues in the healthcare system.
0: It was a pretty big problem. Obviously, you must have seen it both as insurance commissioner and then as governor.
1: You bet. Uh, And as a legislator, we worked on a lot of health issues. And in a rural state, some of those problems are just amplified because there also is access to providers, uh, even if you're fully insured to be in a small community in this country and not have easy access to a doctor. And certainly easy access to a specialist just makes health challenges even more complicated. So when you first became HHS secretary, there was already a pretty big head of steam for
0: doing something about people without insurance, uh, particularly in the individual insurance market, where some people were completely locked out because they had pre-existing conditions, and also trying to do something to address costs, even in the headwind of the Great Recession, remembering back to 2009. What did you see as the most important thing the administration could do to sort of move
1: that debate forward? Well, We identified a couple of things. Um, First of all, there was a great interest in not repeating what people saw as the mistakes of the Clinton health plan, not holding this legislation closely at the White House and then springing it on Congress. We knew Congress had to own it. Uh, There were people in Congress who had been working on health issues for a very long time. They needed to be a part of the conversation. And we also had a pretty good state template for improving access to coverage of individuals who didn't have affordable employer-based coverage. In Massachusetts, uh, they had raised the Medicaid income eligibility to almost 300 percent of poverty and then uh, created really a large pool for individuals to buy individual coverage with tax help from the state. Um, signed
0: by then Governor Mitt Romney. Yes,
1: indeed. But made sure that you didn't have an adverse selection in a risk pool everybody was in. So that seemed to be um, particularly for President Obama, who had, in his analysis of the markets, didn't want to start all over again from scratch, didn't want to disrupt the whole market, but wanted to really fill the gap. And the gap was what do you do for the lowest income workers, expand Medicaid, and what do you do for people who are out in the marketplace? buying their own coverage who either need financial help or need insurance companies to play by a different set of rules because everybody in the individual market was medically underwritten. So healthy, well folks were fine. Other people were either locked out entirely or at least the condition that they want to cover were locked out. So previous health
0: proposals had been at least partly bipartisan. Obviously, the Massachusetts plan was signed by a Republican governor. And yet uh, Mitch McConnell came out very early on and said his job in the Senate was to make Barack Obama a one-term president. And there was an entire basically GOP blockade of the entire effort. Uh, Did you anticipate that? And how did you have to change
1: your strategy to work around it? Well, I'm a Democrat from Kansas, so I have to be an optimist. Um, And I continued to believe, uh, first, that we would be able to secure Republican votes in either the House or the Senate. That turned out to be not accurate in spite of hundreds of hours of hearings and lots of amendments suggested by Republican members and delaying the process in the Senate so that Senator Bacchus the chairman of the finance committee could go behind closed doors and work closely with a group of six senators only to emerge with zero republican votes. So I kept thinking that once the bill was signed we would then get republican support and the day that the president signed the bill republican attorneys general sued on constitutionality I thought once the supreme court made a ruling on constitutionality, we would have broad-based support only to then have the election over the horizon. And and that was a major debate in the re-election of President Obama. And then I still continue to believe that once you cross that threshold in November of 2012 and healthcare had been a major discussion item, uh, the Republicans promising to repeal Obamacare and the president promising to move ahead, that then it would be settled And here we are, days from the 10th anniversary, and it's still being litigated and challenged and fought about. So I don't think anybody ever has seen this kind of battle over a major piece of legislation that has now been the law for 10 years and has never even been able to secure a technical correction for any of the language glitches. So I'm just totally baffled. And those who have been on the Hill far longer than I have said, they have never seen anything like this.
0: Is there anything you wish you'd done differently during the congressional debate,
1: or was this basically kind of it, – it, it was what it was? I wish we had done two things differently. I don't know what we could have done to get Republican support. But at the end of the day, if we knew we only were going to have Democratic support, I think the bill could have been more progressive than it ended up being. That's step one. Secondly, I think that President Obama was very convinced that one of the ways to get Republican support and get – the country to buy in was ensuring people that this would be entirely paid for. And there was a financial ceiling of pay for. We could identify certain pots of money, but beyond that, um, didn't really know where the money would come from. That really hindered some of the components of the bill. For instance, I think we would have had more generous subsidies and subsidies that maybe went all the way up the income ladder with more money. We would have had a different look at. Who qualified for unaffordable insurance? It would have been a family picture, not just an individual. All of those decisions were made about money, not about policy. so we know that the bill nearly died
0: at several stages along the way. Was there a moment that you almost gave up hope, and was there what was the moment where you actually knew it was going to happen? Was there a moment before the president put pen to paper?
1: Well, one of the most interesting rooms I was in during this entire uh, tenure, five and a half years at HHS, was a sort of conference committee, although it was all Democrats. It was the leadership from the House and the leadership of the Senate. Um, The Senate had finally acted on Christmas Eve to pass their version of the Affordable Care Act, and we had two very different bills, one that passed the House, one that passed the Senate. And for about a six-day period of time, after Christmas, and Uh, Before Congress fully came back, we had all of the leadership, Democratic leadership from the House and the Senate, who sat in a room and went line by line through the bill with the president as the chief negotiator and rewrote what would have been a compromise bill, would have been the legislation that everybody agreed on and I always found it really outrageous when people would suggest that President Obama didn't know what was in the bill. I can guarantee you he read every line of both bills. So he knew everything that was in the bill. We made a deal. We had a great bill and then lost the Massachusetts election and lost the 60th senator. At that point, things seemed pretty bleak. Um, You said it was there ever a point. That that was the moment – And Speaker Pelosi said, I don't know that I can get House members to vote for the Senate bill, which became the only pathway left to take a bill through the House and the Senate. She said now that they know everything that's in it, because we, again, had just gone through the bill a moment at a time. And a lot of what was very progressive about the House bill had to be discarded because it didn't fit the reconciliation rules. So we were in a real catch-22 where the House bill – um, which had barely gotten through in the first place uh, and people were staking their reputations and their lives on it, now had to be essentially skinny down, had to be made uh, more conservative Look, Some of the features had to be eliminated and it was really unclear. Um, and it's when my, I would say my, um, I've always been a huge Nancy Pelosi fan. I've always thought she was the single most skilled political leader I've ever seen, but watching her take the bill through the House the second time was a feat that I will never forget.
0: And was that was there a moment where you knew it was gonna
1: happen? No. I was in her office several times the week that we were leading up to the vote. I went to a two AM meeting the night before. She was calling individual members. I mean we really were not she finally said, you know, I think we're there. But there was no guarantee that we would have the 218 votes needed. And until that final moment, we weren't positive that the bill would actually go.
0: In retrospect, how sorry are you that the public option didn't make it in because of the odd way the bill had to become law?
1: Well, that wasn't the odd way that it became law. Um, Joe Lieberman made it very clear on Meet the Press on a Sunday morning, much to the surprise of everyone, including the president of the United States. That he was not going to support a public option. That's when we had 60 senators um, still in the Senate. And it came as a total shock to everyone because no one knew that this was even an item of dispute. I think missing the public option uh, was a huge blow mostly because it would have been the cost lever that is missing from the bill. It would have forced the private companies to actually compete – with what we knew would be a lower administrative cost, lower priced public plan. And it really would have operated much the way Medicare operates today, where Medicare benefits can be administered by a private company in a Medicare Advantage plan or fee-for-service through the government. But fee-for-service sets the ceiling. And Medicare Advantage plans have to beat that cost. They can't exceed the cost. So, That would have been a very helpful – and it would have provided competition in areas where there's still monopoly markets.
0: So if passing
1: the law was hard,
0: implementing the law was harder still. Uh, Most people looking from the outside would guess that your worst day was when healthcare.gov crashed on takeoff in October of 2013. Was that
1: it or was there something we never even knew about? Well – Between October 1st and December 1st was a very, very, very long eight weeks. It seemed like eight years. It was actually eight weeks. The scariest part of that eight weeks was about a three-day period. So the initial thought was there was just too much traffic day one and people couldn't get through. And that continued on to day two. By about day three, it was clear that there were some very fundamental flaws throughout the system, not just at the gateway, but – As people got further into the system, they would be run into GAF. So there was kind of an emergency call for a team of, of, you know, top-notch tech analysts. And there was probably a three-day period of time where they were going through from start to finish, making an assessment of whether the site could be saved or not, or we would have to start all over again. That was probably the most terrifying moment because um, I kept thinking how in the world would we go back to the president and say, oh, by the way, we have to start over again. The good news was they came back and said, it can be fixed. Um, It's going to take eight weeks. We think you could go out in public and say, by December 1, we'll have a functional website. Not beautiful, but functional. And that was a pretty terrifying moment because I, I thought, we don't have two bites at this apple. If we're wrong again, if it doesn't work on December 1st, we are toast. Um, but you had to, again, be optimistic. And um, I was. Uh, but the, the analysis period where we really didn't know if it could be salvaged was terrifying. So now it's 10 years later. The
0: law is more popular than ever, and yet there are still some big problems in the nation's health care system, including levels of cost-sharing, surprise bills, so that even people who do have insurance are worried about costs when accessing care. Why didn't the Affordable Care Act fix everything?
1: Well, it's so interesting to me because I think this you know, kind of attack was it's a government takeover of health care. Frankly, it probably would have been better to be a government takeover of healthcare. We got blamed for it, and yet we really didn't do that. We ran most of this through the private system. So costs are still blossoming out of control. We've talked about the public option would have been a lever for that, which we don't have. I think in terms of surprise billing wasn't even an issue until investment bankers began buying specialty practices and figuring out, oh, there's a new way to make money, you know, of being the out-of-network anesthesiologist. Um, so some of this is brand new. And I also think often the Affordable Care Act is blamed for employers shifting massive costs over the last 10 years onto their employees in employer-based health care plans, which weren't really tampered with by the Affordable Care Act. That was always to be left alone. So we own all the bad. Um, Having said that, there are millions of people who have coverage today. Insurers cannot discriminate against people with preexisting health condition. That's very good news. I think there is much more universal agreement in the country that health care is a right, not tied to your job or your geography. Um, So there has been significant progress made in spite of laws and unfunding and underfunding and regulations that have done everything from try to dismantle the pools to confuse people about whether even the law is still in place. Um, The framework is still there. If there is a president starting in 2021 who wants this law to work, it would be not easy, but... um, with the framework there, you could go back and and begin to build a very robust system based on what's in place.
0: So that sort of leads to my last question, which you mentioned earlier. I mean, one of the pieces of fallout from the constant partisanship over this is that Congress has never had a chance to do technical corrections of this bill, which is typical after any, after legislation that's not even half this big. Um, If there were two or three things that you could go in and fix, what would
1: they be? Well, I think that there definitely was never the funding for full implementation. And it's still clear that um, there there are missing pieces. We need a lot more troops on the ground reaching into vulnerable, at-risk communities uh, where there's cultural barriers to insurance, where there's fear to get people to understand that first, the law has not been repealed, and secondly, that there is help. And there are lots of people who still would qualify for very low or no-cost plans who have never signed up. So that's, that's a big missing piece, and, and that, again, could be solved with some really intense outreach. I think um, there's a lawsuit pending right now, a $12 billion lawsuit, where insurance companies make the case that they were not paid for the risk quarters. They took a chance. They signed up. That revenue was to be rebalanced, and they told that they would be getting the money. I mean, they yeah. the law says we will pay you the money, and and that never happened. And I think that the government's likely to lose that suit, uh, so it it gives an indication when you take twelve billion dollars out of plans, and people say, "Well, why would insurers not sign up any longer?" It's like, well, I you know they can't continue to lose money. I think just having more than technical fixes at this point, Julie. Having rules that people could count on, saying to insurers, "Here's what the rules are, here's how you operate," would bring a new wave of competition into the market and um, have a much more robust uh, marketplace for people to pick and choose. Consumers like choice and they like competition, and I think we could do both of those, but only if they know what the ground rules are.
0: Last question: What are what are you most proud of having? worked on this and having it part of your legacy?
1: Well, certainly, I get stopped every day. Um, I get stopped on airplanes, in grocery stores, and the stories are always very personal. Uh, People say to me, aren't you that health lady? Uh, My husband... You know, lost his job and we had to buy coverage in the market and then he could get surgery and because of you, we could get that coverage. Uh, I'm the mom of a special needs child who I always worried would never be able to be insured if anything happened to me and my husband and now that's different. I mean, they are breathtaking and heartbreaking stories where people say, my life is very different. Uh, one of my favorite is a – there's a great little diner on Massachusetts Street in Lawrence, Kansas, where I live. And Meg, who owns the diner, the Ladybird Bird Diner, uh, said to me a couple of years ago, you know, this is your diner. And I said, really? Cool. I'll take it. What does that mean? She said, well, I was a waitress. I always wanted to have my own place. My husband and I had um, enough cash set aside. But she said – I have a pre-existing health condition. He's a carpenter, uh, so he didn't have insurance. I had to work in a different job so I could get insurance coverage. And she said, your bill, the Affordable Care Act, made it possible that I could open this business. And now I serve pie every day, and I'm just happy as a clam. And I thought, now that's a very positive step forward. That's a great legacy to have.
0: Congratulations on your diner. Thank you. Kathleen Tubelius, thank you very much. Good to be with you.
1: Okay, we are back and ready to
0: reflect. There have been a lot of 10-year retrospectives of the ACA. I wrote one of them, but I'm particularly glad to have you guys here because we all lived not just the passage and implementation of the law, but covered health well before the ACA debate. I won't say how old any of us are. Thank let you. us <laughs> let us start with what the health system looked like before President Obama became president. What were the biggest health issues official Washington grappled with? What what did, what did we spend all our time covering? It's hard to remember. We stood in the hallway a lot. Patients uh, bill
2: right. <laughs> The Doc the, Fix, the Doc Fix, the Medicare—that's for Medicare physician uh, payment, which has now been permanently fixed. But at the time, it was a yearly bill, right? Uh, the Children's Health Insurance Program—I mean, I think
3: the failure of the Clinton Plan, right? And stating us—that's uh, where we That's where the three of us met.
2: Right. You know, we were babies. But anyway, I think the lesson of the failure of the Clinton Plan was right—you had to go incrementally. That this big sweeping overhaul wasn't going to work. And so, as lawmakers looked at the health system they made these other changes Medicare prescription drug bills and other ones so they were smaller but i think in the you sort of had on the stove this pot brewing of uninsured rate was continuing to climb and the cost of insurance was continuing to climb and and people couldn't get insurance based on a pre-existing condition and these sort of nagging problems were still out
0: there cuz they hadn't been addressed And And we're getting worse. And we're getting worse, right? That seemed to be sort of the, you know, particularly people who couldn't get health insurance at any price, people who could get health insurance but couldn't afford it, um, and, you know, the sort of the spiraling cost of health care in general. Women charge more than men? Yes, that's right. I forgot about that.
3: I remember, um, you know, Massachusetts was the first state to do um, its own pre-Obamacare kind of plan. I remember looking during the early debate on what became Obamacare, what became the Affordable Care Act, that there were actually more uninsured people in Massachusetts – excuse me, more uninsured people in Texas than there were people in Massachusetts. Massachusetts.
0: <laughs> not, uh, I'm not sure that's not still the case. So I feel like a lot of people think that the Affordable Care Act started when Obama was elected. But in truth, the groundwork was being laid for at least two years leading up to the 2008 elections. Um, some – Remind us of some of the things that were going on. I mean, Senator Kennedy was having sort of meetings with uh, with stakeholder groups. There were all of these odd bedfellow groups the the people who are who would normally object to a major health bill were all. Crawling on board, right?
2: Wasn't this when Ron Pollack of Families USA and Chip Kahn, who I think was then running the health insurance industry, were trying to talk and bring groups on? And
0: I think he was running the Federation. The by Federation, the sorry, the hospitals. apologies. Yeah.
2: But but nonetheless, that these conversations were happening. There was the I may be jumping on timeframes, but the Library of Congress Health Summit sticks yeah, out with in Senator my mind. Baucus and Baucus and Grassley. Grassley. I remember thinking they had all these people talking about.
3: It might still be there. <laughs> it's
2: so expensive. People can't get it. You know, that it, again, to this issue of people trying to address these problems and how could we address these problems, I think the thought was, and that kind of went this way with the Affordable Care Act, that if you get the stakeholders interested, the people that would actually sell the health insurance or the hospitals that would take care of people and so on, get them interested in buying in, that somehow that would help it at the congressional level?
3: Well, it's one of the many paradoxes of what became the ACA. I mean, the Clinton plan died in 93 and 94 because all the health sectors beat up on it mercilessly, right. and it died. So the effort, and these were the preliminary efforts pre-2009, pre, pre- 2009, to get these groups together, to get the stakeholders, to get the activists in the industry, and everybody saying, let's learn from our past mistakes. We all recognize the problem. We all want to solve it. Can we identify any common ground? And, of course, on, on one hand, they... It became sort of this paradox is you couldn't do it without the industry, but the critics of it are mad because the industry agreed to it, and that's been part of the conundrum on the progressive left side, and um, and yet the – and then the industry – Went as far as they were going to go. And now that there's pressure from the left to go further, they're even I'm not even talking about Medicare for all. I mean, any further. The industry is generally opposed to any larger government role. So you've had these series of that was very convoluted, but you've had these series of convoluted conversations trying to bring people together and then they fall apart. And then you try again to bring people together and then it falls apart. What happened there is you did build a co- coalition, but it The sort of myth of maybe we can be bipartisan did not last very long.
0: Well, that, yeah, that's what I mean. These were all very by, not just, you know. Strange bedfellows in terms of the the stakeholders, but these were bipartisan conversations. I mean, there really did seem to be a push from both Republicans and Democrats to do something. Newt Gingrich was a big, you know, proponent of of health reform of the individual mandate, which he wrote a book about the individual mandate. There was a lot of sort of bipartisan buy in, and then Obama got elected, and it all went out the window. Exactly, and and
2: and it, that also sort of struck at the. Those philosophical differences within the parties about the role of government and whether or not you should have particular mandates on what's in insurance or should you buy insurance and to your point, the individual mandate was a Republican idea that had been out there for a while and sort of – Like 15 years. It had been right. out there for a long time. I think
3: 88 or something. Uh, eighty. Six or eighty-seven, yeah. but it didn't. Right. It was a smaller mandate. It was a mandate for a smaller catastrophic yes, insurance. Yes, that's it right. It wasn't right. the that's mandate true. when when Democrats say, "Well, it was the Republican idea." It was sort of the second cousin of the Republican idea. I mean, <laughs> yes, the Republicans favored an individual mandate, but it was a much smaller, different context.
0: So, before Congress can get to health care in two thousand and nine, it has to deal with the tanking economy. That feels very familiar right now. Um, and they did uh, their stimulus bill. Things finally get going on what would become the Affordable Care Act in sort of the spring and summer of two thousand nine. Uh, and, and stretch through March of 2010. Um, I want to know everybody's sort of most indelible memory of, of that stretch while they were actually trying to get it done. The Gang of Six,
2: those hallway meetings for Max Baucus. I think it was three Republicans and three Democrats, and they were trying to come up with a bipartisan deal. And And for those who haven't covered Capitol Hill, I mean, the process is everybody kind of goes in a room. And they eventually they come out and you just hope they give you some news and tell you something or there's announcements and sort of staking out being in the hallway. We all were waiting for these folks to come out. I mean that kind of sticks in my mind. Um, another one – I think I was sitting next to you when this happened, Joanne, when the Senate Finance Committee mark up the bill and they got Olympia nope. – no, I wasn't, I wasn't the next to no. All right, I was. I was, I was I'm there. sorry. Maybe it was you. I don't know. Anyway, but there are a bunch of us there. I thought that was kind of an interesting thing. And then
3: there's so many markups and so many times we've done that, but not that one.
2: And <laughs> then, of course, this is kind of a nerd moment. But the announcement when it came out that the bill was going to cost uh,
0: a trillion dollars, a, oh, right
2: under they wanted no, to go yeah, under. They wanted to under, go nine hundred right. billion, right? They wanted that. That I remember Jim Manley, who then I believe was working for Harry Reid. For Harry uh, Reid. <laughs> Running out and saying, announcing that to us and being like having to call it in right away. And who would ever think that a Congressional Budget Office score would be that newsworthy? But those were kind of,
0: kind of moments that stuck in my mind from that period. I remember actually the, the day of the last House vote, which was a, or a, a Sunday. There was a Sunday vote. And I remember going up to the Hill and there were mobs of Tea Party protesters there. I mean, it was just co- – I mean, you couldn't go anywhere on the Capitol yeah. grounds. Yeah, yeah. And it was a beautiful, you know, early spring I remember that. day. And, you know, I've been I've been covering Capitol Hill since the 1980s. I worked on Capitol Hill briefly before that. I grew up practically on Capitol Hill. Both my parents had worked there. And I had never seen anything like that. And it was actually a little scary. I mean, they were all very – Unhappy, they thought their entire freedom was being taken away, and it was really hard to sort of get between the Capitol and the office buildings. I'm like, what is happening here? But you know, at least people were exercised about their, you know, representative government. they involved in their process. So. Did you have a moment, Joanne?
3: Um, I mean, I think the moment was just sort of watching it pass the Senate. Oh you know? yeah, Christmas yeah, Eve morning, at Christmas 7 Eve. You know, and right. I, I guess I, I remember watching Senator Dodd in particular. And um, Senator Kennedy had died a few months earlier. And we later learned that um, Senator Dodd, who had taken over the Senate Health Committee and who had worked alongside Senator Kennedy, wasn't co- as closely identified, but he, he carried it across the finish line. And what we later learned is um, that Senator Dodd, in Christmas Eve, even though he had young kids and had been at this gruelingly months and months, you know, ordeal in the Senate, the first thing before he went home, he went to Senator Kennedy's grave in this, I believe, in the snow. So even though I was not with Senator Dodd, obviously at the grave, I, I later heard about it, and I remember him voting, and I remember learning about that, and that's sort of one of the things that sticks with me at that time.
0: Yeah, it was it was pretty amazing. I asked Secretary Sibelius this, but I'm going to ask you guys too. Um, was there a moment when you most doubted that the bill was going to pass? Oh, every you know, constantly. <laughs>
3: remember, I was at that you know, you've all known, most of my career has been a reporter, but that was was for a year and a half at the think tank, so I was sort of watching it a little bit more remotely, still doing healthcare, obviously. Um, yeah, I mean, I we thought it felt we thought it would you know it felt apart three times a day.
2: <laughs> I think, remember those town hall meetings in August. Yeah, I August think 2009. 2009. thinking, huh. I mean, when, just for people to refresh their memories or people who may have missed it, these were meetings in opposition to the Affordable Care Act and there were routine. It's not unusual for a, a member of Congress to get up and talk to their constituents during that August break. And everywhere they went, they were greeted by people who did not want the Affordable Care Act to pass. I think that – and then I think when Scott Brown got elected – To fill Senator Kennedy's seat, they lost the 60th vote. The 60th being 60 Democrats to pass the bill. They had to break the filibuster. To to break the filibuster, thank you. And they had to come up with a whole new strategy. And at that moment, I mean, my memory is that happened, and we were running around asking Democrats about the bill. And I think I, you know, several of us probably talked to Chuck Schumer, and it was almost like, "What health care bill?" You know, like, "Oh, we'll, we'll talk about that. We're working on that." Like all of a sudden, it had it was like. They had hit the brakes really hard, and they had to. But um, wondering yeah, was, at that it moment, it was
0: really only Nancy Pelosi yeah, at that moment. Yeah, Pelosi pulled it out. Yeah, who said no? We can, we can make this. And happen. you know, so, watching
3: right? her now, we shouldn't, we should have known then. <laughs> she pulls things out. Yeah. Um, right. So um, the the yeah, I mean, it was always precarious. And you know, when people talk about it now as being an incremental step or a small step, it was a historic set. That doesn't mean it's. Doesn't mean it was a perfect step. It right. doesn't mean there are not things wrong with it. Some you know, that doesn't mean that we to address. But it was a you know, the the cliched word at the time was transformational and it was transformational.
0: I feel like the, the not
3: not comprehensive? The moment not. that
0: sticks out for me and, and I'm believe me, feeling this right now, was when the Energy and Commerce Committee got hung up on abortion. And it almost—they almost they almost couldn't get the bill out of the Energy and Commerce Committee because there were anti-abortion Democrats enough to make a majority. And I remember I, – I can't remember who was going back and forth, but literally the abortion rights people, mostly women, were sitting in one room. And the anti-abortion people were sitting in another room and there were staff and members who were sort of shuttling in between trying to figure out if they could, I mean, the object from the beginning was to make it abortion neutral, was to neither expand nor contract abortion rights. And they simply couldn't agree on how that could be done. And this was early on before the House passed. It It almost blew up again before the whole thing passed over the same issue. So, and, you know, and again, as we saw, you know, in, in, 2018 um, there were, there were bills that were trying to fix the Affordable Care Act that you know came asunder over this exact same issue um, I, I just I feel like that that I keep going back to sort of that night and I think they went all night I think they did and they finally obviously you know worked out something but no one was ever very happy with it and I think to this day no one is really very happy right. with it Um so the bill becomes law, and it turns out that getting it passed was the easy part. Um, why was implementation so very hard? You you would think that this hyper, you know, efficient administration would be would be able to do this, but not so much. Well, you had four year gap
2: to begin with, in the sense for many of the big provisions, right? For the exchanges where people buy coverage, for the subsidies, and it was also kind of hard. To explain, there are some people who have insurance who felt like I didn't really get anything out of it and a proponent would argue, well, actually you did. You are not going to be discriminated against based on a preexisting condition. If you have an adult child up to 26, you can keep on their health insurance, your parents' health insurance plan. No lifetime
0: caps, no annual limits. Your insurance company is limited in how much it can collect in in profit and administrative overhead. But
2: we understand that. But a a lot of regular people who don't cover this for a living maybe just didn't quite understand how does this benefit me? And of course, they had to have that gap between the passage and the subsidies and and the exchanges to help keep that price tag down we were just talking about. But I I think if the benefit – and you also had to give states – Time and the providers to implement it, but I wonder if that had been shorter, if it would have had a different reception.
0: And there were the also public. people wandering. There were Republicans wandering around the country, saying, telling governors, whispering, "There, don't do this. Don't help the law right. succeed." And then, of course, there was the lawsuit. that was right. So, I mean, it was attacked um,
3: vehemently from day one, and it it did not stop for years. It's still not over. It's, right. a, it's different now. It's less intense in some ways, but there's still a pending Supreme Court case. Um, the because you could attack it, people were not getting a lot of benefits. They were getting a few for the first few years and you could attack it. It was easy to attack because there was nothing. There was nothing to counterbalance. It was an attack on on, a, on this big, complicated, very complicated. I mean, we're all pretty expert, and we're constantly googling things and checking things, and occasionally, you know, not remembering some. It's, it's really complicated. It's really it's easy to attack something big and complicated that isn't really giving you anything yet. And on the other side, the, the Obama administration was, you know, wait, you'll like it, <laughs> try it, you'll like it. And um, of course, it did not. You know, even in twenty. The fall of 2013, the implementation was a disaster. So um, nothing really – and also the states, you know, the, it was written – it was assumed, it was probably a, a compromise, a political compromise, that the states would put up their own exchanges and they didn't. So more and more of the states turned to the federal government. So the federal government ended
0: had an up even bigger, do, bigger yeah. job
3: in setting up all the exchanges, which became healthcare.gov and we all remember that.
0: Oh, Yeah. <laughs> My back went out about three days after that happened. So all I remember when I think about 2013 and the uh, uh, and the uh, exchanges not working is that I basically couldn't move for about – actually, my back and the exchanges got better at about the same pace, which was not fast enough for either one of us. Um, one of the great ironies of public opinion is that the Affordable Care Act didn't get really popular until the Republicans tried to repeal it in 2017. I wonder – and this is sort of a looking forward question. Are people – It's still not really popular. It's more it's popular. More than it was. was yeah. right. But, but it, by then, it had become the status quo. And that's right. sort of my question. Are people just really, really, really that scared of upsetting the status quo, even if it's a status quo that they don't like? Because that's what we saw during the Clinton. That was why they tried to not disrupt so many people's coverage with the Affordable Care Act, because when they tried to disrupt people's coverage in a good way in the Clinton plan, everybody turned against it. I mean, is that it? And what does it say about Medicare for all, which would arguably be better for a lot of people, but people are afraid to give up even the... Stuff they have now they don't like. People don't like change, and
3: and I mean some people like change, but a lot of people don't like change. And this is you know almost a fifth of our economy. It affects you know millions, tens of millions of people, and and people aren't sure that it's going to be better. And they don't. And also they don't. You know, government has not always implemented things well. I mean, the 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 implementation of Obamacare certainly didn't go well. We're here talking in mid March, the initial rollout of uh, Coronavirus testing did not go well. Um, there's, you know, the government is not always perfect, and that plays into, you know, sort of a skepticism and hostility that's a long running undercurrent in this country.
2: But the law now, so now also has had traction. You may know somebody who got the Medicaid expansion that the law is part of. You might have a lot, a lot child, of people know people right, with the Medicaid yeah, up to 26, who so you're now keeping on your health insurance plan. You may now be able to get a policy that you were underwritten for a preexisting medical condition, and you didn't. You don't have that problem now. I mean, I think that that jump between twenty ten and, and twenty seventeen, um, and now is that it's people. Not everybody, but many people perceive it as it has given them something. It's really hard in legislation to take away something that people have and that's part of it too. And even if you're not a direct beneficiary, you don't think you are a direct beneficiary of the Affordable Care Act, you know it has benefited others and that gives people pause when they think about that taking away something, a past benefit that has benefited someone else.
3: The other thing is there was always this peculiar thing in Obamacare, which is if you ask people, do you like Obamacare? The country was very divided along party lines. And if you ask them if they like certain things in Obamacare, people, including people who said, I hate Obamacare, they liked you know, keeping your kid right. on until 26. They liked the, they like the pr- protection for pre existing conditions. They liked the lack of discrimination against women. They liked a whole lot of things. But did they like Obamacare? Oh, no, I hate that. So, I mean, they liked the, you know, subsidizing, you know, even a lot of the Republicans thought giving lower income people help getting insurance was a good thing. So, you know, there was more of a party split on some of these issues. But overall, people liked, you know, the, the sort of it was less than the sum of its parts that they liked. The parts and they didn't like the sum. Did I get that right? Yes, you so, get that right. Very good. <laughs> and the second thing is the one thing that was really um, unpopular is the, man- the the individual mandate penalty and the, the mandate is on the books but the penalty is gone and that's taken some of the, the sort of steam out of the fight. Um, people like the pre existing conditions. We, we got rid of the spinach and we still have the dessert.
0: I remember on actually I was surprised because I didn't know this was the date on October 1st 2013 which was the day that both the government closed and the healthcare.gov failed to launch. Jimmy Kimmel did this great piece where he went out and had, you know, his producer do the man on the street interviews. It's like, which do you prefer, Obamacare or the ACA? And I mean to a person. They all said, "Oh, they like the ACA much better than Obamacare." And I remember at the end the producer says to the woman, "You know they're the same thing." And the woman says, "No, they're not." It was really. You You know, know, if you went
2: and took that poll now with a camera, you might find similar answers. Yeah, that's probably true. But it
0: was. You know, we were three years into it at that point, and people still had absolutely no idea what what the difference was. Um, So, what happens to the ACA now? President Trump. I mean, notwithstanding the Supreme Court uh, case, but you know, if President Trump is reelected, are they really going to try to repeal it? Not if
3: the House stays Democrat. And at this point, you know, in March, it looks like the House will stay Democratic, and at this point in March, it looks like the Senate will stay Republican, but maybe narrower. You know, I think that there's some sense that that's in play, although still leaning Republican. Um, So if you have divided Congress, nothing it won't go, and that's the. You know, There's a lot of things that can change, particularly in this national emergency that is both an epidemic and – or a pandemic officially and an economic crash. Um, lots of – it is – politics are always unpredictable and they're really unpredictable right now.
2: And, um, and there's no Republican alternative at this point. I mean that's been the still, problem, right, it's to try to get something that really does co- cover people with comprehensive – there, uh, the there pre-existing been, rather right. conditions and comprehensive and all uh, comprehensive benefits and this sort of thing, but you know, remember, we got to keep our eye on the courts. It's happening through the rate the changes that because of the scenario you just laid out. If you can't get it done politically, you go to the rulemaking process at the Department of Health and Human Services and other federal agencies. You fight it in the courts. There are several court cases that are pending now, and that will be where the action may be
0: if president trump is reelected and if there's a democrat elected who's not named bernie sanders or who even who is named bernie sanders again
3: if it's if if you have a democratic house and a republican senate uh, a democratic president would be you know somewhat limited in how much they could move ahead it would be more incremental there is you know and and also think this you know the the cracks in the system you know as we do deal with this epidemic and the co-pays and the barriers to care. I mean, I think public attitudes are going to change a lot in the next six months. So it doesn't mean they go for Medicare for all. But I think the idea of, oh, this is just not what, what we need. I think that there's going to be more pressure for change. And yet you, I would also anticipate Republican and Republican resistance to change, but maybe not Quite as much because they're going to hear it from their – this virus does not know if you're a Republican or a Democrat. It does not know if you're insured or uninsured. It does not know the size of your deductible. So I think this could really turn out to be. And this may change our country in many ways, which we can't predict.
0: But attitudes toward some kind of fix could change. I'm amazed at how fast the you know oh if if the person who's serving me my coffee might be sick. I want them to stay home. Maybe we should all have sick, sick leave. Right. Yeah, yeah. Um, that that happened like within a week. Yes. So yes. I mean, it's not a done deal yet. But um, um, yeah, you're right. Sometimes sometimes things don't change at all. And sometimes they change very quickly.
3: And if we all if all goes well and we're back here in a reasonably short period of time, we can talk about how it has changed the attitudes towards things like Medicare, Medicaid block grants.
0: <laughs> yeah, that too. All right. Well, we're going to go around the table. And I want your most memorable moment about the ACA from the past 10 years. I only get one.
2: Yes, okay. You get All one. right. All right. I will say that heart-stopping Supreme Court ruling in 2012 about the mandate, whether it was unconstitutional, whether the law would go down, because there was some confusion initially. I remember being in the newsroom. We've got a news alert. You're ready to hit the button, and you just thank God we didn't do it right away and figured out that the first rulings were wrong, but also the the other part of that ruling that Medicaid would become optional, yeah, I that think, that one really coming. didn't see that one coming. So if I have to give you one, that one, I still – my heart is beating right now. Just yeah, we had like
3: 40 it. different pre writes of like different <laughs> things. I mean, we had right. so many different variants, you know, sort of semi-written case, you know. So but not that fast. one, I bet. We did not have that one, no. <laughs> I am a very good planner and I did not have that one. My favorite might just be from a few days ago when Vice President Pence announced that um, – Co- coronavirus testing would be covered as an essential health benefit, which, is, we all know, is Obamacare. So, you know, it's recent, but it was an interesting one.
0: Mine, mine is corny. It was. I actually went to the signing of the bill, which was, and I, I I've been to a fair number of bill signings, but there was something about, you know, having spent so many years sort of waiting for that kind of moment to see it actually get signed, and to see John Dingell there um, was really very sort of. I I was surprised at, even as a reporter, sort of how moved I was. All right. Well, that is our show for this week. Thank you all for being such a dedicated audience. Thank you, panelists. This is our last episode for a while, as our panelists are now all working from home to beat the spread of COVID-19. We will be back in your feed as soon as we can. In the meantime, and I know I say this every week, but I really, really mean it this week. Be healthy. Be healthy.